Welcome to Mode Push. This is a bonus episode for all those fans in the making who are maybe getting pressured to start watching F1 or keep seeing driver thirst traps on GQ or other magazines or are just simply intrigued and want to know the heck is F1, how does it work, and why does it matter? We'll break down the basics of F1 so you are either ready to watch a race or just talk shop with a fan like us and keep binging our podcast. We'll cover who's on the grid normally, what a typical race weekend looks like, how points work, what's at stake, any important rules, and yeah, you'll be ready to go at the end of this. All right, let's jump in. So Monica, Formula One, what can I expect to see in a typical weekend? Who is on the track? So we have had for many years now 10 teams, and each team brings two drivers with their own car, so 20 cars on the grid every weekend. Typically, the season out of 20 to 22 races every year. This year, we're actually going to go up to 23, which is kind of controversial. But you basically have these 20 cars, and then you have a whole team behind them. And the beauty of F1, I think, is you get to see them in all these really glamorous locations. So we will go all around the world. We will go to Australia. We'll go to Monaco. We'll go to our hometown of Austin. Austin, Abu Dhabi. I, yeah, I think that you can drop a little inside knowledge. People like to call it the flying or traveling circus because it's just such a production to get these 20 cars, 20 drivers, literally thousands of people, sometimes on back-to-back weekends in different corners of the, of the world. Two cool types of races. One is you have the regular tracks, which is like true race tracks. You have crazy turns. You'll have, you know, curbs. You'll have all these like typical things that you would expect in a race. Like track. a purpose-built race track, right? Like a built for yes. this for F1 or race car driving. Yes, built to maximize the cars, to give you crazy high speeds, to test how well they can brake, etc. But then the other cool thing is you'll have these city tracks, which I love which is basically when they shut down city streets in a place like Singapore or Monaco and you're driving through the city and you can kind of see the highlights. Baku is the yes. craziest road race I've ever, if you, if you want to sound like such an insider and you overhear people talking about street racing, Baku, it's bananas. People are like hanging out of their windows watching the race and you're just like, this is nuts. <laughs> They're driving 200 plus miles an hour down the street. <laughs> Historic small street next to a castle. You're like, is everyone okay? So we have street races. We have purpose-built tracks all over the world. We have 10 teams, 20 drivers, 20 cars, approximately 22-ish races. In 23, sounds like Liberty was trying to get all cheeky. So what's a typical race weekend look like? I mean, I know people start paying attention to this as early as like a Thursday and the Instagrams start going off even Wednesday evenings as drivers start to arrive. So like what's the sketch? Right. I mean, to your point, it's crazy because you're getting all these people in one to two weeks. Usually there's often not even a weekend between races. So people are constantly just flying all over the world. So folks will arrive starting on Wednesday. They'll start posting from their new location. Thursday is press day, and you usually get some like juicy tidbits out of both the team principals and the drivers. Uh, they start talking about what they think about the track, any like interweek drama. The shade. And the shade comes to light. Which is really, I feel like Drive to Survive probably lives off of press day. Yeah. <laughs> And then you go into practices. So you have two practices on Fridays, usually. They're each like an hour and they get to just try out the track. That's the only time they get to try out the track. Everything else that they do in these cars happens in simulators. 
which is pretty wild to me because there's no other sport where you can't have unlimited practice time in a way. And so, and every track is different. So they have two practices on Friday. They'll have one Saturday morning and then Saturday afternoon on a typical weekend will be quali. That is when they qualify for the starting grid for the actual race. So and why, like- does, why does quali matter so much? There's a whole cult following of qualifying. Quali, I mean, it matters and it doesn't. If you, like me, are a LeClaire fan, you start to believe that quality doesn't matter because you can just win pole every weekend and then it doesn't matter. But in theory, quality determines where you start the race. And it is a huge advantage to start in what people call pole, which is the very front of the grid, number one. You start on the best side of the track. You start in the front, clean air in front of you. But then even, I mean, obviously every, you know, starting second, third, fourth, it's obviously all an advantage because it has been historically very hard to pass in the race. So quality is like a chance to show your best, your very best single lap. There are no points in quality though. And that is why fans like me get so burned. Point. So the whole point of Formula One is to name a winning constructor and a winning driver. And how do you do that? So I'm segueing off of what you said about point. So final thing of the weekend, you have qualifying, you move to the final race. The race is on Sunday. The whole day is about the race. And that's where all the points are usually. So basically the top 10 cars to finish the race get points. Very, very first person starts at 25 points. Then you go 18, 15, 12, 10. Then you start as the number six person gets eight, six, four, two, one. And everyone below that gets nothing. There's also an additional point for fastest lap if you're in that top 10, which becomes this whole crazy arms race as the season moves on. But to your point, there's two real battles happening, right? There's the world championship, which is major bragging rights. You have two people on the grid currently who have won the last nine years, Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton. Wow. Uh, Very dominant. But we're hoping that this is a year where that could get mixed up a little. (laughs) And then you have the Constructors' Championship, which is at the team level, which is where the real money is made and where a lot of the team principal drama comes, the budget cap. We've covered that in some of our other podcasts, but that is... And the importance of a second driver, right? Because you do have Mm -hmm. two chances to make the most points out of any given race weekend. Right. So... To that point, I feel like this driver dynamic is one of the most interesting things that we see in Drive to Survive and in the races themselves. How would you describe the driver dynamic and the second drive, like why that exists? Oh my God. It's So they say that your biggest competition is your teammate in this sport, which I think is one of the most interesting things about it. Uh, This is a person who you should work together with because you ultimately want to bring home the constructor's title, which is again, where all the money comes from in the sport for your team. But these, these are men with huge egos and they're all men and huge ambition and huge levels of competitiveness. Again, there's only 20 seats in this sport in the entire world. So they are trying to one up each other. In the rare instance, you do have a second driver who is completely and totally comfortable with and knows that they are a second driver. I think that's the case with Valtteri Bottas under the Lewis Hamilton dominance. And even to some extent, Checo um, under Max at the moment. I think he may have forgotten a little bit during last season, but Red Bull quickly put him in line. You have, I think in like a, in a team principles perfect world, you have two 
almost equal drivers that think they're equal. So they're constantly just pushing to the limits to try and finish top two every weekend. The problem with that is you have drivers who can sometimes battle against each other, which is super detrimental because there are scenarios where you can crash out of a race. So if you wreck or don't finish or have engine failure, whatever, that's a big fat DNF zero points for your team. And there have been plenty of examples. I think the most famous one was covered on Drive to Survive when Danny Rick accidentally rear-ended Max Verstappen, where the team came away with nothing. So driver dynamics play a huge role in where a team is going to sit in terms of the Constructors' Championship, but also in terms of like driving these extremely competitive people to do the best that they can and ultimately try to be the world champion, which, as Monica said previously, has only gone to two people over the last nine years, which is kind of crazy. It's, it's insane. When you think about weekend, there's a lot of drama. F1 is kind of a made-up sport. And <laughs> it feels like there's all these rules and all these penalties until there aren't. But I feel like there's some basics that are worth knowing. Probably the biggest one is to understand like some of the flags and the safety cars. So Bridge, how would you describe those basics of a race? Yeah. So there's a handful of flags that they'll wave throughout the track. I'm waving off camera because obviously this is the podcast. (laughs) They'll wave to the drivers to signal what's going on on track. So Obviously, starting with the most knowable and recognizable is the black and white checkered. That is the finish flag. So if you are the first person to see that flag and cross, you have won the race. There is a yellow flag, which is used as a signal for a hazard ahead. So if you see the yellow flag, it means that you need to pay attention. There's something happening. Reduce your speed. If you see a pair of yellow flags, it means you must significantly reduce your speed and you are not allowed to overtake because there is something that is designated as dangerous enough up ahead on the track. So someone might have crashed out debris on the track, you know, whatever might be happening. Moving up intensity, you have a red flag. Red flag is a big bad sign. Red typically follows double yellow when they've finally assessed that a situation is dire enough to stop the race. But red signifies that everyone must slow down and return as quickly and safely as possible to the pit lane. So you see these in horrible accidents. So when Joe flipped at Silverstone last year, when Roman Grosjean jumped out of the fire at the end of Drive to Survive season three, these are incidences that are deemed significant enough to just stop the race. Green is all clear. Makes sense. Blue is a sad, sad Latifi flag. That basically, sorry, so shady. Basically means someone, a race leader or someone much faster than you is preparing to lap you. When you see a blue flag, you must make way for the approaching car at the earliest and safest opportunity. Funny, you can ignore up to three blue flags, but on your third blue flag, you will get a penalty. There've been a couple of instances of shady blue flag dealings, but it's it's mostly reserved for people that are at the back of the race. Um, what else? What else am I missing? I feel like you covered the flags. Other thing that comes up in also ambiguous form is the safety car. So in theory, the safety car should be pretty black and white. When there is debris on the track or there is a crash that needs to be cleared up, a wreck, someone's car is like on the track, they will have 
safety people come on and remove the debris or car. But you have two types of a safety car. You have a virtual safety car, which is essentially <laughs> that just made like up a rule. F1. made up rule. Yes, exactly. A little sign that drivers see on their dashboard. Side note, you should check out what a driver's dashboard looks like at some point because it is crazy gaming. It's wild. It's wild. It's, it, I mean, that is like one of many reasons why I could never drive an F1 car. <laughs> they drive, they basically drive in like a reclined position, like laying down in these cars with like almost zero visibility with a dashboard and a steering wheel with like hundred buttons. And then you think of like Danny Rick with his 2008 iPod shuffle and you're like, how do these things go together? This is made for the gaming Gen Zers like Max and Lando to just dominate. Totally. So the virtual safety car shows up as a little note on there, as do all of the flags. That means that they have to slow to 30 to 40% of their normal track pace, which basically means that everyone is just going around the track slowly, but in the same order and spacing as they were in prior. Typically, safety cars, both virtual and safe and full on, are like a great time to stop at the pits. And so you'll often see a lot of folks do that strategically. But the big difference is the virtual safety car, everyone just slows. The actual safety car is a physical safety car that comes out because the incident is so big that it's going to take more aggressive management, essentially. And this physical safety car drives in front of the race leader. And so what obviously ends up happening is every single car just like crunched behind him. And in some ways it can feel you're restarting the race at the end of that, which is a little frustrating. I find it exciting. I love a good restart, especially if my favorite person's not leading the race. I'm like, this is great. This is gold. Well, I feel like the most, the biggest moment of this is the end of the 2021 season when the stakes came down to the final lap of the final race and I felt like the safety car and all that ensued between Lewis and Max was just I was like is this real life is this really happening (laughs) this feels so political poor Lewis Hamilton probably felt the exact same way and then that guy lost his job over it though so all right so we have a virtual safety car which means it's resolvable it's not super dangerous Nothing really changes other than the race slows down. I actually find these to be super boring. The only advantage being you can pit and change your tires a little faster because you don't lose as much time in the pit lane. And then the real safety cars, which actually can wreak havoc. What else? Only other thing is one of our favorite things to talk about, which is tire strategy, which is really Mm. just all strategy because tires dictate so much of your strategy in F1, weirdly. You never stop going around the track. You cannot refuel anymore. You haven't been able to since like 2010. So the only thing that you do is you come off to change your tires and you are mandated to at least use two different types of tires during a race. And usually you may even need a third because the races are long and they degrade your tires and and whatnot. So there are five main tires. There's hard, medium, soft, and then there's two types for when it's wet which leads to a lot of drama. Love Uh, a a rainy race. I know. I feel like you are a tire aficionado. So what would you say about the way that this all works? (laughs) I think you're spot on. I think you can win a race based on a tire strategy. You can certainly lose a race based on a tire strategy. To tie the whole episode together, the whole point of these free practice sessions in the beginning of the weekend is to test out how these different tire compounds react in these conditions. Because to your point, these little practice sessions are the only sort of dress rehearsal that these drivers get. So basically, the teams try to make 
an educated guess on degradation. So how quickly a tire is going to fall apart based on the conditions on the track. Completely impacted by the weather, heat, um, the grain on the road, the previous races that were already run. So the lines that the F2 races were run around the same track. And there are full on teams, not just Pete, not like one job. This is like a team of people are just constantly looking at tire performance, tire management, tire degradation in the field to come up with a starting strategy, which flexes and changes throughout the race. I'm sure Monica's letting me talk about this because Ferrari broke her heart with tire strategy last season, but basically (laughs) have to you have to make a call on, is this a track that my soft tires can last on? So again, so think of compound in terms of degradation being inverse. So soft with speed. Soft tires are typically the fastest tires, but they degrade the fastest. So if you have a very long track, you're only going to make it a couple of laps before these tires go. If you have a very high temperature or in like the case of Mexico City, high elevation, a lot of teams got Mexico City wrong because they thought the Elevation and the heat would degrade the soft and medium compounds. A hard tire is always going to be slower, but it's going to last longer. And to Monica's point, when you go into the pits, you lose automatically a minute at least on track. So it's a it's a hugely strategic, so many inputs, so many outputs, and you, you have to constantly be watching what your competition is doing. So oftentimes drivers will even try to like bake each other out and like sing like they're going into the pits or speak over the radio like they're going into the pits to try and get their their competition to pit either ahead or behind them. So that's what's known as the, there's the overcut and the undercut. Monica, I mean, I don't know if this, we're getting too deep here, but if you want to lay out the, you know, give our fans, make them sound like real pros and explain the overcut, undercut G. I mean, I'll say it took me so long to understand the overcut and the undercut, and I at least understand the undercut. I may throw it back to you over the overcut. <laughs> the undercut is clear because basically tires, as you said, degrade over time. When you switch tires, you have to warm them up for some period, but then you have the advantage of having newer tires. You go faster, tires are better. And so with the undercut, essentially, like everyone is on worse tires. You go into the pits. You, you're also like a minute behind everyone else, which is often a lap of sorts. You have so much clean air in front of you and you have amazing tires and you can just kind of run and you can make up many, many seconds in that time. And and just to be clear, races are one in seconds. So that is really meaningful. And you can make up a lot of seconds in the one to 10 laps that it will often take for your competitor to decide to pit because they take a different strategy. And that can be a compounding advantage that you hold the whole time. And I feel like you see the undercut often happening both between teams, aka like Mercedes is rivaling Red Bull and one of them decides to do the undercut, but also between drivers, you'll often see the preferred driver get the undercut strategy or whoever's in front on a team gets to come in first and is inherently undercutting the other person. The overcut has never really made so much sense to me. But the overcut is like a freak occurrence if it works. I think it's typically much of a gamble. I feel like poor Lewis has lost a couple of races recently where he tried to overcut, which is essentially the inverse of an undercut. You try to stay out as long as possible on your used tires and just make them work. I think that the undercut tends to have a higher probability of success and the overcut only works if like the timing is such that if you pit early, you would come out into traffic. 
So you're not getting the full benefit of clean air and new tires and no one in front of you. So the undercut's almost wasted. I think the most classic example of the overcut is Esteban Ocon's win in Hungary. He won because he changed tires and he made them work and he did not. Even Albon in like opening race of last season where everyone was like, is Williams a real threat? Because Alex Albon literally just did not pit. He was forced to pit in the like second to last lap because he was going to get a penalty because you, to like Monica said, you have to pit and use at least two different types of tire compounds. He just made it work on those tires. But to win, I think the undercut tends to be more sure bet. And I think the overcut tends to be like happy accident if it works out. <laughs> That's a good point. The overcut, one, those people are usually called tire whisperers because they're able to like, like Checo, exactly. They're able to like make these tires last unbelievable amounts. But two, to your point, they're almost gambling that either degradation is so much less than you expect, or there'll be a safety car and they'll be able to make up for the fact that they haven't pitted. I've seen that backfire many times. So I kind of hate the overcut, but those are very insider terms if you want to drop them next time. <laughs> yes, very. And, uh, and yeah, our name, Mode Push, what does it mean in case you're wondering? Great question. On this little crazy dashboard simulation that they live in. The metaverse. Are, I mean, this is probably the original metaverse. <laughs> they have all these modes that they can flip through. And one of them is mode push. And basically, so I think the race is kind of won in like few moments. There's like Bali, which is where you start. There's the actual start of the race, which is usually chaos. The best and part of the race. It's so, the first lap is so fun. Everyone is so close together. There's like accidents happening and it's just, it's very exciting. And then there's the whole pitting strategy. That's like a big part of what can end up messing up a race or winning a race for somebody later in the game. But throughout the race, there are all these like micro strategy decisions. And if you listen to the radios between the drivers and their race managers, here's some of the calls that the teams are making. And usually it's like, Okay, now is the time to nurse your tires and chill and just let the car The recharge. cars do have to recharge. It's very right. It's kind of crazy. And then you'll have moments where they're like, now is the time to push. And that will be when they enter literally mode push. <laughs> and they use up, they exhaust the engine, they go full out. And usually they do it around when they're trying to pass or when they're in the final stretches of trying to like lock in a position. The DRS zones. I guess we didn't talk about DRS. Yes. What is DRS bridge? Drag reduction system. It's actually something that Liberty worked to introduce. One of the goals when Liberty bought F1 was how do we make the races more dynamic and more watchable or interesting to watch? And the conclusion was people like when people pass. That's the action. And so drag reduction, this concept where it's a mode, it's our mode push, go flat out, balls to the wall, come and take it. That was so Texas. It's like highest gear and then some. There's a flap that opens on the back of the car. You typically go 10 to 20 kilometers per hour faster than the person in front of you. You can only use DRS when you are in certain zones that are designated around the track. And you can only use DRS if you are in within one second of the driver ahead of you. It's like a fascinating new dynamic that has done exactly what Liberty wanted it to do, which is create this more dynamic and way more passing filled race. So you often see a driver just constantly behind someone for eight, nine, 10 laps, trying to close the gap to the person in front of them 
to get into the DRS zone where they can actually like tier mode push and get their advantage, their speed advantage and get around the car in front of them, which interestingly enough, that car now has DRS on the car that has passed. So you get into these crazy battles back and forth with these cars, and it's actually a whole other strategy and important part of having sort of a teammate on the track. So a lot of times certain drivers will be told or given team orders to hang back and sacrifice their pace to make sure that the driver on their team behind them in a DRS zone stays in a DRS mode and locks out a competing team that might be sort of their tail. DRS kind of changed the game. The passing, it's completely worked. I think we get at least 20 passes per race now, and it's fascinating to watch. And it's, it's yeah, it's like leveled up mode push. So passing is what we're here for. The counter to that is you'll see sometimes in the midfield some long DRS trains, and you'll hear the announcers talk about it which is basically that everyone has the same advantage and they're just like stuck moving in this very high speed way. But that's when the undercut or the overcut can come in. So true. So true. Comes full circle. So yeah, uh, basically punchline, if you want to know F1 101, just watching races, watch Drive to Survive, listen to the pod and know that no matter what, F1 is a really a made up sport. Like if Fernando Alonso doesn't like a call on a rule, they'll probably change it. Yeah, at the end of the day, all of this stuff comes back to the FIA, which is their governing body. And there's a lot of closed doors, post-race decision-making that can happen. Politicking, if you will. Politicking. I mean, you have to remember F1's roots. I think it started as like a driving club in Britain. It's like a gentleman's sport. That coupled with the fact you have the most competitive people in the world that all will literally do anything to win. So I hope that you all become F1 fans. Some lingo, even if you get it wrong, people will be like, ooh, ooh, DRS, undercut, street race. Interesting. It's all about Baku. It really is all about Baku. (laughs) Yeah, and if you have more questions, feel free to hit us up. We are always here to answer more or put them on a future pod, but that should be what you need to get going for this crazy 23 race season we have ahead. Yeah. All right. Enjoy. Bye guys. Bye. Old push. Old push.